and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creator seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, oh God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand, O Lord. Have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord. Is that better? 
Good. Do I need to repeat that? Okay. I'm one of those people who believes that the Bible is inspired. It's God's gift to us. I'm also one of those people who has no aspirations that I'm always inspired myself. When I read the Bible, when I interpret the Bible, it doesn't mean that I am getting it down correctly. And this is one of those days when I, even before I start sharing with you how I understand this text, I'm asking you to be particularly careful, to be cautious with my understanding. Because as nearly as I can tell, there is no consensus on how to interpret this text. So I'm going to give you my understanding. Doesn't mean that I'm right. Got that? Okay. I also have put myself to it. So I think I'm telling you the truth, but I might not be. So be careful. Okay. Now, let's run our way, run through this passage, through this psalm, asking first the question, what pain was David experiencing? Okay. Uh, shouldn't take long. If you have your Bible open, you heard Susie read the passage. We know that David was experiencing excruciating pain, do we not? There were people, there was someone who took him to court, who took him out to the city gate, and in our vernacular, took him to court. Someone who accused him of a crime, of some evil that David knew that he had not committed. So uh, that in itself would be enough to turn me upside down. That would be enough to grab me. Okay? I've had a person take me to enter into a civil lawsuit for me, against me. I sold a house, my wife and I sold a house, and about six months later, I received information from an attorney that I was being sued for deliberately crushing and breaking bottles uh, and, and deliberately spreading them down in the basement and in the yard so that people would be injured. I suppose I'm capable of that, but I didn't do it. And I wound up, my wife and I wound up paying several thousand dollars for something that we did not do because our attorney told us that even though we were innocent, that it was the cheapest way to go. Oh, still, ooh, does that bug me, okay? And that is just small potatoes compared to what this guy, what David was experiencing. Not only was he being taken to court, he was experiencing what the text calls deception. The accuser was acting as if he was a good guy. He was relating with David, apparently, as if he enjoyed him, as if he respected him, as if he appreciated him, but he did not. Okay? He was acting as if he were a good man when he was not. That's called deception, and David was on the brunt end of deception. The text says that literally uses the verb Satan, from which we get, obviously, the name Satan, accuser. This man took David to the city gates where the elders were, and he accused him, and he accused him, and he accused him in satanic fashion, just like Satan does, of things that he had not committed. Okay? 
He experienced, David experienced derision. He experienced hostility. He experienced a man who, the text in verse 2 says it's evil. And what that word refers to is a man was relating to David, saying, David, I do not care about your well-being. I do not care about the well-being of the community. I will take advantage of you so that I can get ahead in life. That's rasha. That's evil. Okay? <clears throat> Sounds pretty American, doesn't it? Okay? This is what David was experiencing. Okay? And... Later on, the psalm says that not only did this man uh, relate to David this way, he also recruited others. And so they scorned him, and they ridiculed him, and they mocked him, and they wagged their heads at him. Okay? Now, I don't really suspect that head-wagging is a big deal in U.S. culture, but we certainly have our equivalents, don't we? This was all about searing hot intense pain. Now, the question that I want to address, that I want to ask, is how should you and I love God wholeheartedly when we are right up to here with bitterness, with anguish, with frustration, with emotions that are just gripping us. Okay? Now, my response, if I'm even anywhere close to mature in my relationship with Christ, not proud of what I'm about to say, but is that I will sit and boil. I will sit and stew. And later on, when I get some semblance of being under control, then I will go to God. Okay? I don't go to God when I'm red hot. I don't go to God when I'm obsessed, when I'm frozen in, into immobility. I just, I just soak in myself. That's what I do. This guy, this David, immediately went to God and he gave to God what he was. Now, if I'm understanding the passage correctly, David at this, in this moment was ugly. His desires, his emotions, his thoughts were not aligned with God. He was reeling. But what impresses me about David is that he went right to God with what he was, not what he wasn't. I'm impressed. Okay. So as we read this particular psalm, we see him praying prayers that I could not bring myself to pray. My wife read the passage for us this morning. I've been with her this week, and I've seen her struggling, not wanting to read the passage. Can you relate to her? Have you? I've never, I've had enemies. I've had people that, that treat me badly. I've never felt an inclination to pray that the person would lose his job. I've never had an inclination to pray, would you, God, would you take him down? I've never had an inclination to pray that this guy's kids would be orphans forever and would go wander around and lose all the property. Ooh, that sounds a lot more like the evil one than the good one, doesn't it? That's the way I understand 
what David is doing. And now here's the point that I want to make that I am not positive that is true. I think it's true. I think that David, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, is showing us how do we peace ourselves? How do we come under God's control when we are totally out of control? How, when you and I have ugly, hateful, vengeful, bitter thoughts and emotions and desires, what do we go to God with? What I believe that David does is that he goes to God with what he is. He's bitter. He's out of control. He wants revenge, so he asks God to do things. Is God going to answer those questions, those, those prayers affirmatively? Well, in a sense, yeah. If the person does not convert to Jesus Christ. This is a very hellish prayer, which hell does exist. Hell does exist. But will God be pleased to answer this prayer? No. And I think the point is that David is posturing himself in this psalm just as, the, another, as a prophet Jonah postures himself. Jonah wrote about himself, his name literally means dove, as anything but a dove. Jonah postured himself as a fool who did not want to be what God wanted him to be, who did not want to do what God wanted to do. And so he ran. He writes this book describing himself as the fool and God as the winner. I'm impressed with Jonah for doing that. Okay? And I think that David does the same thing because he says he understands I was full of... I'm going to speak not the nicest word in the world... He was full of crap. What do you do to love God when you're full of crap? He put it out there. Now, but what he didn't do was he didn't put all that stuff out there uncaringly. He went, he ran up to God the Father. And this text doesn't say this, I'm interpreting. He hopped into God's lap. And in his lap, he beat against the Father's chest and said, God, I don't understand you. Okay, this is what I am. This is what I am. This is what I am. And he just kept venting, 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 pouring out the crap that was in him. Until we get to verse 21. Okay, so there's verse after verse after verse of venom-filled, bile-filled prayer. Verse after verse after verse of bile. Okay, now before we get to verse 21, let's talk a little bit about bile. Okay, I'm not a physiologist, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, but I do know that bile is something called a greenish or yellowish fluid. Okay, and it is something that is secreted by the kidney, and the kidney has the function, or the, this is bile, if I understand, if I read Wikipedia correctly. 
Bile has the function of going into the digestive system, into the intestines, into the stomach to help break down foods that are hard for the stomach to break down. Okay? Bile's a good thing. Unless. Unless the body is not able to break that food down. Unless the body is sick. Then all of a sudden, the bile makes things worse. Does it not? Bile is a good thing when the body's doing well. Bile is, for me, I'm not a happy camper when bile is yelling at me. So what does the body do when the bile level is going too high? You get the picture? <laughs> I don't even think I have to use the word. Okay. That's what David is doing. The bile level was too high. The pain, the emotions were excruciating. They were hot. They were intolerable. And so as David feels, feels, and he boils in himself, he boils and he biles, he boils and he biles, and that is exactly what he does, not to a neighbor, not to a spouse, not, doesn't kick the dog. He runs to God, his father, and he laments to God. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. To tell you the truth, I don't have the honesty. I don't have the courage, usually, to act like this. But David did. And then after... 20 verses of retching. He gets to the point, but you, O oh God. And after the but you, O oh God, you can just feel the tone, the tension starting, starting to subside. Okay? Does it go completely away? I don't think it does. As I read this psalm, David is not the happiest of campers at the end of the psalm, but he sure is a lot healthier than when he began. That's, that's how I read the, the text, the, the tone, the attitude of the psalm. And so the question is, how did, God, did David move from all of this excruciating pain, these hateful, devilish thoughts, to, but you, O oh God, and then move closer and closer into God-centeredness, into peace, further and further away from being totally absorbed in his pain, totally absorbed in himself. And I believe that the answer is that our hero, David, cultivated the virtue of lamenting, of identifying his emotions, telling them to God, identifying his desires, speaking his desires, his thoughts to God the Father, in God's presence, okay? That's what he did, and our God did not strike him with a bolt of lightning. Okay? Our God, for some strange reason, could strike him down, but if you read David, if you read Jeremiah, if you read Ezekiel, if you read Lamentations, if you read Job, this curious, inscrutable, loving, marvelous God seems to say, I am the one who is the specialist 
at receiving your pain. Not a spouse, not a child, not a parent, not other people, although they can be gifts. God is the one who is the specialist at receiving our unspeakable pain. May we cultivate the virtue, the skill of pouring out bitter bile to our Heavenly Father. Yes? Okay. So I'm just going to take a couple minutes to get a little bit more personal because I think you have the idea. Okay. What do I do? What do I most commonly do when I'm in the frying pan, when I'm feeling pain? Okay. I have some answers. I thought some answers up. Okay. Hmm. I flee. I've done that before a million times. Pressure comes on, I want to get out of Dodge. Okay? I look for a distraction. Boy, Netflix is really helpful. Okay? Or go out and play basketball or something. Okay? I look to numb myself. I have a very clear image of one time when, when a time of great, great shame and pain that I went through. I came home and I sat in a chair in front of a fire and I have no idea how long I sat there, but I was just numb. Okay. I suspect you've been there. Oh. I try to make my enemy hurt. I try to get even. I try to crush. I do that. I try to recruit others to help me crush the person that I want to crush. Hey, buddy, hey, hey, friend, would you please help me gang up on him? Okay. I project onto others. Okay. I'll blame them. I'll just contrary to the way our God says, Glenn Johnson, if you are going to be a man who criticizes, if you're going to be a man who blames, our Lord Jesus in Matthew 7 says, check out the log in your own eye before you try going, trying to get a piece of, a speck of dust out of your enemy's eye. It's, that's metaphoric language for humility. Glenn, self-evaluate, check yourself out so that you don't blame in a poisoning way so that you criticize so that you blame in a loving, redemptive way? Dumb question. Do you think that Glenn just gravitates towards criticizing someone else or blaming someone else when I'm in the fire? Do I, do I self-examine myself first? No. No. Now, it just feels so good. I'm frustrated, so I find some way to kick and then deal with the consequences later. I've done that many, many times. Okay, another thing that I do is I will obsess. Okay, I will obsess over the thing that that person did, and I just boil, and I boil, and I obsess, and I just lose track of God. Okay? Ooh. Not only do I obsess, I also whine. Like in the words of Hosea, I sit on a bed and I wail on my bed. Now, okay, it's called self-pity. It's called self-centeredness. It's called whining, and I do all of those things. 
Okay. What else do I do? I suppress, I deny that I'm hurting, and I try to convince my wife or myself that I'm not hurting when I'm dying inside. I just do all the things. And of course, when I suppress, this may not be an intuitive thing to you, but when I suppress, I just set myself up to split, to, be, to dissociate, to be a double-minded person. It's just, it's just me. To the degree that you are like me in these things, folks, at this particular point, you and I are acting in such a way that there is not a drop of discernible difference between me, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and a person who isn't the, hasn't the slightest interest in Christ. There's just no difference between me and a person who is not a Christian. This is life in the slop, and I am in the slop a lot. Okay, so let's go deal with another question. When I'm trying to be a little bit more holy, but I'm not actually managing to be like Christ, but somehow or other I'm trying to put on the Christian hat with the pain that I'm suffering, what do I do? Okay, I'm really skilled at these errors. Okay. So one of the things that I will do is I will say, God, I'm hurting. That's an advance. And I'll say, God, would you please take away my hurt? Now, is that an awful prayer? No, I don't think it's awful. It, but you see, the thing is, I don't want God to deal with me and my hurt. I don't want to learn how to love God when I'm feeling pain. I just want God to take my pain away. And I have found many, many, many times that my God is not terribly interested in answering that prayer because it's not what he's most interested in. He's not most interested in taking away my pain. He's most interested in me loving him wholeheartedly with what I am. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all the time, even when your heart is full of bile. Okay? What else do I do? I'll say, Lord, would you please zap that person that I don't like? Would you zap that person who is acting as my enemy? Is it the worst prayer in the world? At least I'm praying. At least I'm going to the Father. But once again, I'm detouring. I'm derailing myself from me loving God in the moment. And I find that God very seldom answers that prayer because I believe that God is more interested in me loving him. Yes? The first set of answers that I gave you, I think, are unique to no one. They're common to all of us. The second group seems to me to be a little more reserved for people who are trying in a rather unsuccessful, half-hearted way to be followers of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, how on earth do I move from those lousy examples that I just gave you to being like David, to actually pouring out what I am to the Father in the moment? My answer is that it just, it takes so much that is not normal to me. I think it takes a deep belief that God is actually more interested in me loving him with what I am than he is in solving the problem. 
God is a God who will solve all problems, but he seems to rather consistently do it more slowly than I want him to. And I think the reason is because he's more concerned about me loving him than he is about fixing the problem. It's my way of looking at it. Okay? And what I want to suggest is that you and I are wise people. If we jettison the wrong belief that God should never allow us to experience pain, that we should jettison the wrong belief that if we are in pain, God is bound to remove us or to remove the pain. <laughs> it's not at all common American thought. Okay. One more question before I invite a friend up. How? How? Can I become a man who steps into the death and the resurrection of my Lord Jesus when I'm in this place? How can I do it? My confession, my admission to you is that much of the time I'm just not strong enough. I'm so caught up in the evil that I'm experiencing. I'm so caught up in myself that me turning to the death and the resurrection of Jesus just seems like it's just... Alien, like it's the farthest thing in the world from anything that I should do. Okay? And so I'm asking the question, how can I? And the only answer, I don't think, I'm not very pleased with my answer. Uh, first answer I want to give you is, man, I hope I can squeak. When I'm weak, I think that just squeaking, Jesus, even if it's Jesus, just something, some movement, in my heart towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an advance, okay? Because typically, I'm not strong enough to do that when I'm all caught up in the, in the fiery pain of my, in myself, okay? So if I can just squeak out a Jesus prayer, that for me is an advance. I'm going to give you one other thing that has helped me. I do not know if you are a person who is trying to center your entire being, to anchor your entire being in the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to become that man, okay? And I fail a ton, but I'm trying. And what I am discovering is that I haven't got a ghost of a chance of turning to Jesus when the pressure is really hot unless I'm pouring myself into the death and the resurrection of Jesus the rest of the time. So I find that it helps a lot to train myself. Jesus, what does your death and what does your resurrection have to do with all of these things that are easier so that when the heat's really on, I might have a better chance of turning myself towards the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. I hope that's helpful. You are hearing a message from a man who has great desire to become like David, but who has little experience. So, if that shoe fits for you, may we step into this. I want to introduce to you uh, Nikum. Uh, Nikum Pond. For those of you who haven't met him, this guy is one cool dude. <laughs> and I don't know, okay, we've 
Would you please share with us a bit of your childhood and how your childhood was filled with extreme pain? Sure. Sure. Um, it, yeah. King David is pretty much my favorite um, character in the Bible because it's really going through First, Second Samuel, um, reading through that over and over again when I became a a Christian really got me through a lot of the deep pain and suffering. And so just to give you context um, about just deep pain and suffering, again, many of you don't know me, that Nikum was named after a concentration camp that I was born in in Cambodia. And many of you don't know, um, may know this, that Cambodia went through um, a genocide called the Killing Fields. As a result of the Killing Fields um, in the mid-70s, that two million Cambodian died um, during that time. The country at the time wanted to create a class of agrarian society, and so they got rid of all Western influences, and my family were the first to go. The moment I was born um, in, in that concentration camp, 50 of my relatives already um, died. And from there, um, our family was next, and so by God's grace that um, we were able to escape through the jungles, through uh, fields of landmines, and into uh, Thailand refugee camp. Uh, we stayed there for about three years and then we got sponsored to the United States. And, and so growing up in the United States, um, just imagine, well one of the relatives that died was my father. Um, he actually got executed three days before I was born. And so, so just imagine growing up in Hilltop Tacoma, just to give you some context, um, there's about six of us, seven of us living in a one-bedroom apartment, and that my mom, um, there was not really any services that help um, refugees to really be integrated into the United States, and so my mom dealt with PTSD because she had to live through all of that. So imagine going, um, being raised in a household where it's like you're walking on eggshell, and if you don't, and if you know anything about PTSD, it's that there's a lot of bitterness and outrage and then just a lot of accusation. And so that was the climate in our home. Nobody ever wanted to be in our house. And so growing up in that kind of environment is that you get lashed at all the time. There's bitterness, there's explosion, there's a lot of anger that came out, and there's a lot of abuse as well. And and so just an example of what happened, then I became depressed. And a lot example of that is when I was seven, um, I almost committed suicide. You know, because I was always home alone because everybody was out. And then I locked myself in a room in that one bedroom apartment and got a knife to my stomach thinking, if I, who, if I was to die right now, who would care about me? And then I heard another voice, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit, is... Um, you know, if I was to live, what would happen to my life? Like, it's just that curiosity of, of what will my life become if I was to continue living? And so I put the knife down, and then I just left and went outside to, um, to play. Um, so that's just an example of really in the childhood of, of just dealing with a lot of depression. And it wasn't until... 16 that I heard the gospel for the first time that God had really um, he saved me and and from there even then you think that once you get saved that 
everything will, be, will go so well and that the suffering will not happen. <laughs> that is just further from the truth. Um, see, I grew up in a Buddhist home. I was the first in my family to become a Christian. And back then it was a big deal, even to now, because 99% of Cambodians are Christians. I mean, are Buddhists. And so being the first, there's a lot of argument. They've seen the changes in my life, but yet a lot of my family members um, didn't want me to become a Christian because culturally I'm supposed to be Buddhist. And so by the time I got, the argument got to the point where by the time I was 18, 19, I moved up to Seattle, um, they disowned me. They said, if you're going to become a Christian, don't call us family anymore. And so, so that adds to a lot of the pain and the rejection that um, already amounted um, just throughout life in general. And so that's just... Just a second, then. What was the message that your family was communicating to you when they disowned you? They said, you know what? Christianity is for white people. Um, and Buddhism is for Cambodians. And as a Cambodian, you are born into this religion and you are part of you. You are supposed to be Buddhist. You can believe in Jesus and you can't continue to believe in... Um, um, what they told me was you can believe in Jesus, yet you still cannot re forget who, where you come from. And so you still have to practice a lot of satanic rituals. A lot, there's a lot of rituals that happen in a community, because it's not just Buddhism, it's a mix of um, animism as well. It's just a lot of ancestry worshiping, a lot of other different kind of worshiping and, and um, ritual. And so for me, being a Christian, I cannot participate in yeah. any of that. And because I didn't participate in any of that, so, so they thought I was disrespecting our ancestors. And so that didn't go so well with my family and the entire community. Okay. So what he just said was that they interpreted his action as disrespecting or shaming to them. Yes? Okay. And because they interpreted him as shaming them, then they gave him a bunch of truth claims that were designed to shape his head. And they added to the truth claims a tremendously powerful thing called shaming. So there was a truth claim intensified a gazillion fold by the power of shame. How did you resist that? Well, I was alone. Um, that right there, um, those are the lonely time when I was in Seattle. It was just a process. If, in terms of resisting all of that, um, one, once you're excommunicated from the family, you pretty much um, you, you lose face in the community, and so the community um, rejects you as well. And so during that time, it was just a process of really allowing God to open up the wounds to, to, to help without resistance, because mm -hmm. I didn't resist. It was just more of suppressing it, like what you were saying, with a lot of deep hurt and pain. Um, a lot of the time, it's, you want to just suppress it and just move on with life. Yeah. And so I put a lot of my energy on just work, and put a lot of my energy on and just education and everything else to avoid the pain and the shame that comes with it. When you and I were having coffee this past week, you were sharing that you developed the skill of pouring this gunk out to the Father. Would you please tell some of that story? Yeah, I was in my 20s. Um, it was really God did not allow me to um, <laughs> avoid the pain and the sufferings um, that happened. And, and so it's that skill. It's about eight, 
Uh, it's, a pro it's an eight-year process, um, by the way. And Did you hear that? <laughs> so it didn't happen overnight. So that 20 verses that David was really pouring out, vomiting to God, um, is really God um, um, coming in and, and putting me in a position where I need to vomit to him because it got to a place of um, just got to a place of just when, when bitterness and you don't even know it until God really revealed it to me. And so the very person that I did not want to become, I became that. And that's what really was eye-opening for me was um, just the bitterness of just my mom. She was very bitter. And she accused you day and night for things that you never done before. Mm -hmm. And so it got to the point in my 20s where even though I was successful from the world's perspective, just education and job and promotion and all that, but there's still a lot of internal issues that God really want to go deep and, and really the, allow the master surgeon to, to do some surgery on me. And yeah, and that process of just being alone, because it's easy to, for me, I'm so used to being alone and, and being alone with God. And God was the only person that really was there for me to really get me through um, things in life. And so, so to, that process, so I spend that process of really being alone with God every morning. Um, and it's common practice to this day of really being up at five or six in the morning of just, just being real and authentic and, and talking to God and really pouring out my heart. And I think, I don't, yeah, it's very challenging to express it now. I remember that time, um, I can relate to this passage, is that when I was pouring my heart out to God during one prayer, is that I remember just, and it was so shameful, it was just during that moment of, just wishing that my mom, in many ways, um, thinks it would be a lot better if she wasn't here. So, and that opened up a lot of um, past wounds and it really a lot of healing that comes out of it because when you have so much bitterness, it will take time to really be healed from all, a lot of that toxic. And when you allow God to take you to the depths of your soul, not only you, it's really it's a process becoming human, right? Because sin dehumanizes you. And so here, God wants you to be whole again. So he wants me to be whole. And there, in that process, I really knew who God was in a different way. I knew that he was my high priest. You have to go through that process to really see Jesus through all of the pain and suffering. See, one of the lies is that Jesus, God was never there with me during the suffering. But when I was going through this process, I saw Jesus in the jungles when, when he helped us to escape. I saw Jesus in those moments um, in my childhood. I saw Jesus every step of the way. And that gave me a lot of peace. And I know, I know deep down in my soul that he is my high priest, that he can empathize with me. Because God is greater than any pain or suffering. And from there, instead of having bitterness, he gave me a heart of empathy towards the most marginalized. Um, Nikam, you have walked us down into hell and up into heaven. Thank you.
Thank you. I think I'll have, uh, nothing's going to be added to this. You and I have the privilege of being in a relationship with an exceedingly powerful, good God who is capable of turning hellish, hellish circumstances, frozen, hot hearts into peace, into love. He has this incredible supernatural ability to reproduce himself in the worst of circumstances, in the darkest of hearts. Let us celebrate this amazing, amazing God. Yes? Worship team, would you come up, please? Team, worship pair. <laughs> we get to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I urge you, please remember, please remember that the cross on which your Lord Jesus died was the most powerful shaming instrument at the disposal of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. Okay? The cross is where Jesus died for sin and the cross is where Jesus dealt the death blow to more than sin. Get that? More than sin. He also gave the death blow to sin's fruit of shame. Okay? So I'm inviting you to come up and take a piece of bread, dip it in some juice or some wine. Together, we, in a few minutes, we will, we will ingest this symbol into us of our identification with our blessed Lord Jesus. But remember, both guilt and shame have been done in by our Lord Jesus, and we have the blessed privilege of being free, loving people, no longer bound by guilt or shame.